0: Hi, how's it going? Alex Kapitko here, and guess what? It's the Centered From Reality podcast. Today is Thursday, and it was nice yesterday, but today it's cold again. It's windy. I went out on a run and had to avoid the waves as they were splashing up on the lakeshore path, so nice and chaotic today. Back to the normal, and I'm sitting here Thursday afternoon, and guess what? I have someone feed Phil. Somebody feed Phil on again, uh, quite a nice show to have as background. They're right now cutting some uh, Wagyu beef right now that looks very nice. So making me hungry. They're all laughing. Always good. So anyways, I want to talk about a few different things today, focusing most of the episode on security issues and instability in the Sahel region of Africa, which is kind of like northern West Africa. I also then want to talk going from that into instability in Nigeria ahead of elections and That's not good because Nigeria is kind of the bastion of so-called democracy in the area, or at least it hasn't had a lot of military coups. (laughs) And I do want to start, though, with some updates on the FAA mess from yesterday And, and (coughs) and Joe Biden's woes, which are worsening as we speak. So that's going to be kind of the itinerary for today. But let's start just by mentioning that there's more answers with the FAA stuff from yesterday. And... What I mean here is that apparently there's a damaged database file (laughs) that caused this whole chaotic outrage. And that's according to the FAA. And I guess it's better than a cyber attack because it wasn't nefarious, planned, or coordinated. So I guess that's good. No cyber cyber attack is the culprit. But that being said, I do think this shows some serious issues in our airline infrastructure and our airline industry. And what I mean here is that It's pretty bad that one damaged file could, you know, completely destabilize the entire airline industry for a certain period of time. Now, luckily it was only the morning of Wednesday, but look, some people need to travel, and there should be at least some understanding that if you're flying on a certain day, you can get to your destination on a certain day, and it just doesn't seem like we can deliver on that in the United States right now. And... Like, I even saw reports, and I I didn't touch on this yesterday because I saw it this morning, but there are reports that, like, some people were up in the air and their plane basically had to, like, turn around and head back just because this went offline or whatever. So, not good. It's bad that this can completely destabilize everything. Doesn't give me a lot of hope, but at least as of today, it looks like things are going smooth again. And this is not a good look for Pete Buttigieg or the Biden administration. I still don't know why Pete Buttigieg is even running this. He has no experience here. And I know a lot of people think he's going to run in the future, but I think this could be a blemish on his record. So I'll move on, but I just wanted to start with that update. And the main thing I want to start with, though, is Joe Biden and the lovely classified document scandal that... I don't think it's a cr- like criminally a big deal for him or legally a big deal for him right now compared to what's happened with Trump, but it's a political nightmare, and I could be wrong. As more information comes out, this could be a legal nightmare for him. We'll have to see. But since the last time I talked about this, there have been new revelations. So first off, Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel. So, I mean, there is some some sort of an irony here is that you have one special counsel looking for Trump and investigating his documents his classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, and then you have the current president also being investigated with a special counsel because of his mishandling of classified information. It is quite crazy. And the one thing I'll say off the bat is that prior to this, I was really convinced that something was going to happen to Trump and that he was maybe going to get indicted for this just because the writing was becoming more and more clear on the wall, and it just seemed like this might have been the easiest way to get Trump for something. But this whole thing has just... Muddied the waters in about every way possible. So, anyways, Merrick Garland appoints a special counsel. The other revelation of the last like 24 hours is that there, is that they've found now two batches of documents. The first is what I talked about earlier in the week, which was from Biden's think tank in D.C. But now also they've found others in the garage of his Delaware home, which is <laughs> lovely, very lovely. And I I put on Fox News for a little bit. I think it was last night before I went to a basketball game and. I mean, they're eating this up, and I guess, hey, that's, it's, it's red meat for them for sure. So there's an article in CNN here that notes in quotes, Attorney General Merrick Garland decided to appoint a special counsel soon after receiving the recommendation last week from U.S. Attorney John Losh Jr. He's the guy from Illinois I was talking about. And so he's recommended this, and the article goes on. This recommendation was made before Garland traveled to Mexico with Joe Biden on Sunday night. And from what I've read today, the guy who's going to be leading the special counsel is a former U.S. Atten- uh, attorney sorry, named Robert Herr. And there's a good article on Robert Herr's background, and it discusses in quotes here, Her was nominated to be U.S. attorney in Maryland by then-President Donald Trump in 2017, and he has served in the role until his resignation in 2021. In the job, her played a key role in a number of high-profile cases, including a children's book scandal involving then Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh, that resulted in Pugh being sentenced to three years in prison. Now, that's a, I mean, that's a whole other story. That's really fun. Uh, I'm not going to get into that today, but yeah, there was a whole like money laundering children's book scandal that the Baltimore's mayor was doing, and this guy was involved in uh, bringing her bringing justice to what she was doing. And I've seen a lot of people applaud this decision. Larry Hogan, governor of Maryland, he's applauded the decision, and it's it's probably good news. Probably good news. So Merrick Garland has also noted that her, in quotes, supervised some of the department's more important, national security, public corruption, and other uh, high-profile cases. So this guy's definitely prepared to do it. No issue that he's a Trump appointee. This seems like a guy who's good at his job and... I think it's also probably smart that they did put someone who was appointed by Trump, so it doesn't seem as political. Anyways, I don't have a lot on this just because it's all pretty fresh and I'm not a legal expert, so we're just going to have to wait and see. But I can say with certainty, 100%, that this is going to be a mess. These revelations have... They've really given even sane Republicans now the ability to defend Donald Trump and... In the past, it was really hard to defend Donald Trump without really just extreme cognitive dissonance. But now they can really both sides this, right? They can really both sides this. And look, I said this on Tuesday, and I've seen other shows talk about it, and they've said it's different. What Biden did is different. And I agree. I I definitely agree that it's different, but it's not going to matter. And just from a political perspective, this is awful, right? Also, I mean, they should have just released this information back when it occurred. They could control the story and tell everyone. But they were not up front. And now the media releases it first before Biden's team even mentions it. It's just a bad look and a bad move. I saw Jean-Pierre, press secretary, I think this morning it was, trying to spin this. She seemed unprepared for this. And that's what happens when the story leaks from the media and not from the actual person involved in it. And so not a good look. Again, I don't know if legally this is going to be the issue that Trump is having, but it's just stupid politically. And I mean, I should also add before we move on here is that it's kind of an even worse look for Biden just because he wasn't even president. He was vice president at the time. Like The president has a lot more control over dealing with classified information. Even Trump, for as chaotic as what happened to him even Trump was at least president. So vibes are not good. Vibe check for Biden right now is pretty negative. I I give him a D plus right now for vibes. Moving on, I want to move to the African continent for the rest of the episode. We're not doing as many domestic episodes in today's podcast. You know me, I kind of oscillate between them. So anyways, a few days ago, I remember reading a pretty interesting article out of Reuters, and it discussed in quotes how Chadian security forces have foiled an attempt by a group of army officers to destabilize the country and undermine constitutional order. That didn't sound good at all, so I decided to dig in deeper because I'm, I'm always interested in kind of what is happening in that part of the world because U.S. media just doesn't cover it that much. So I guess this story came out of a plan that was created by a group of army officers and... Chad has been seeing a lot of chaos since 2021. And the reason it has is because the country's longtime ruler, strong man, whatever you want to call him, is a guy named Erd- sorry Idris Deby, And he died on the battlefield in 2021. I remember reading about that going, God, usually you don't send your leader to die in battle in the modern world. But anyways, he did. He died. And his son, Mohammed Idris Deby then seized power. And from my understanding, things over the last year or year plus since that, have gotten much worse because authorities have cracked down on dissent in the recent months as demonstrators have taken to the streets and they want a transition to democratic rule. That's what happens when a long-time strongman dies and his son just takes power. People aren't always thrilled about that. So the country's kind of in an autocratic mess from what I understand right now. And I think my curiosity has been spiked about all of this, or sparked, I guess would be the better way to say it, Because yesterday when I went to a basketball game, my driver was a Sudanese guy. Very interesting guy from Darfur. And really nice. We discussed a lot of the security issues in the area. And he he told me something interesting. He told me that he thinks Chad's military could take all of Western Africa if it wanted. And I don't know how true that is. But I thought it was interesting knowing that Chad is involved in a lot of offenses against the Islamic State. And it made me start thinking about just kind of all the issues in that area. And... I guess for, for that reason, the reason of the Reuters article and a new UN report that I'll get to in a minute, I thought it would be interesting to kind of take a trip across the region, which is known as the Sahel, and discuss the security and humanitarian issues that are happening there. And just so we know our terms, and you know what I'm talking about here, the Sahel generally is an area that includes four countries bordering Lake Chad, which are Cameroon, Chad, Niger, and Nigeria. And also Burkina Faso, the Gambia, Guinea, Mali, Maritana, sorry, Maritania, and uh, Senegal. And so that's kind of known as the Sahel. Of course, maybe some people would have different agreements on what this region is, or if you add or subtract some of the countries I've mentioned. But anyways, it looks like West Africa, the Sahel, whatever we want to call it, face a lot of issues, a lot of serious issues that I think are I think are problematic for regional and global security, as well as just humanitarian issues as well. And it's interesting because right now we are seeing peace talks in Ethiopia, for example, between the Tigrayan region and the central government out of Addis Abi, and that is good news. So we are seeing peace, I guess, in some some form coming out of Ethiopia. Now hundreds of thousands of people have died in Ethiopia, and that creates a lot of resentment I am not even going to try to pretend what happens next for that. But even though we are seeing the civil war in Tigray come to an end, we are now seeing these other issues pop up in the Sahel. And a lot of it stems from history of coups, insecurity because of jihadism, drought, hunger, and the war in Ukraine, all kind of a perfect storm here. So The Economist writes that, according to the U.N., there are unprecedented security and uh, humanitarian challenges in the area. The UN report gives examples, and the lists include jihadists, criminal gangs, uh, and other armed groups, sometimes separatist groups, sometimes other ethnic groups, and they have forced the closure of more than 10,000 schools and 7,000 clinics in the region. So I kind of want to go over this report and then dive into some of the examples that we're seeing, because I think there's a lot of through lines in this region, and In a briefing, and I'm going to try not to butcher this name, Giovanni Bija, now deal with me because this person's title is actually quite long. She is the Deputy Special Representative of the Secretary General and Officer in Charge of the UN Office for the Region. She warned that the war in Ukraine has only worsened stability in the region. She told the council in quotes here, despite efforts by national security forces and international partners, insecurity has again deteriorated in large parts of the region. She added in quotes here, the central Sahel continues to face multidimensional challenges, unprecedented levels of security and humanitarian challenges, socio-political instability... And these are all compounded by the impact of climate change and, f- and food insecurity, which were exacerbated by the conflict in Ukraine. Man, that's a lot of issues. Uh, and that is not good. And the UN article that discusses this briefing and summarizes it also notes here in quotes, at the same time, countries along the coast of the Gulf of Guinea have also seen an increase in attacks against their territories, threatening transport routes to landlocked nations further north. and It's just a complete nightmare. And so basically there's a lot of worries about the region and how it may be impacted in the coming years. Now, back in March, when we were seeing kind of the onset of the war in Ukraine and the chaos it was causing, I actually talked about how the grain crisis and the grain uh, shortage coming out of Ukraine could lead to serious food shortages that were only made worse by climate change. And it looks like those things are coming to fruition here. And we have to remember that Ukraine is kind of the breadbasket for the world. Russia's up there as well. And when you take both of them out of the equation right now, even though they are getting some some grain past the Black Sea, it's still not good. And climate change, as all of us are seeing, is just getting worse. It's getting more intense. And the Sahel especially is an area that already has climate issues, already is impacted by droughts. And now you see a, a rise in extremism mixed with this. And it's tragic, but completely predictable. Now, On a side note, China and Russia have been very involved in Africa. I mean, the Russians have given just a shit ton of arms to Africa. I think they're the biggest supplier of arms to Africa. The Chinese obviously have the Belt and Road Initiative, which I call a pay-to-influence scheme where they build infrastructure projects, not out of the goodness of their hearts, but because one day they're going to need something in return. And I'm curious how this impacts China. The instability is probably not what China wants to see there. I don't even know why China's still there. I I give China a decade on the world stage before they see a lot of internal issues. But anyways, that's a whole other thing. But the first, I think the first real issue in the Sahel are coups. It is safe to say that it's an area that is just riddled with coups. And the Washington Post even has an article, I think it was from last month, it was like late December, that discusses in quotes here, since 2020, there have been six successful coups in Africa. And I didn't add it in in my notes here, but I believe there's been like another, like half a dozen that have failed. So you've seen a lot of attempts. And just to name a few, there was a coup in September of 2022 in Burkina Faso. And this followed a coup in January of 2022 in Burkina Faso. Then there was another coup in Guinea in 2021. And there's also been one in Mali. We talked about the power sharing failures in Chad. But let's start with Burkina Faso. So, the Washington Post has another great article. This was from the first coup that happened in January 2022 in Burkina Faso. And the article notes, Burkina Faso has one of the highest coup and mutiny rates on the continent, giving many citizens a sense of deja vu, or I guess deja coup, this week. The revolt came in the midst of the country's struggle to combat attacks by Islamic armed groups. And from my understanding here... (laughs) There was a mutiny by military members in multiple bases around the country. And these coup leaders had demands that were kind of based on living standards being improved for the military, treatment being better for the military, and pay being better for the military. And from my understanding, a lot of these militaries in the Sahel, and especially in Burkina Faso, they've been fighting the Islamic State whether it's Boko Haram or other groups that are maybe affiliated with ISIL, for, they've been fighting these groups for almost a decade. And the military has been losing in many circumstances, struggling, not getting the right arms or treatment. And this has caused a lot of division in society. So a lot of these coups are mainly led by a disgruntled military. And in Burkina Faso, for example, the first coup in January of last year, happened when the coup makers were basically able to capitalize on wider grievances within the entire nation's ranks, and they were able to successfully take over. And that was followed by a subsequent coup later on in, 20, in late 2022 by the military as well, but for different reasons. And the Burkina Faso situation has been difficult on an international level as well, because the French have actually—I mean, Burkina Faso is an old French colony— And, of course, the French are still highly involved in the region, in the country specifically, but also in the region in general. And the French have kind of had to balance interests because the French have been there fighting extremism as well. It's one of the conflicts that not a lot of people are talking about in the West— But the French are highly involved in the Sahel, and they have like hundreds and hundreds of troops helping out regional forces. And Reuters notes here in quotes, relations between France and Burkina Faso, a former French colony, have deteriorated following two military coups this year that were partly spurred by local authorities' failure to protect civilians from jihadist attacks. And to go further into that, yeah, France has, just in Burkina Faso, 400 special forces that are based to help government forces battle violent Islamic insurgents throughout the country, and basically this all started in Mali, I guess, over the last decade, and it spread to Chad, Mali, Sudan, Nigeria, which we'll get into later, Guinea, and I think, I think if you were going to try to pinpoint the main reason why the instability is happening and why these coups keep happening, it's that there's not a lot of security in the region. And as groups like ISIS, for example, have struggled in the Middle East and have lost territory, they have really grown a huge stable environment in North and Western Africa. And the Sahel, in, in, in specific terms, has been a great breeding ground for extremism. And there's been a lot of good literature on this. The Economist has covered this very thoroughly for years now, that the Sahel specifically... Is kind of where the new era of jihadism is growing and it's succeeding while it's being pushed back in other places and there's even reports for example in some countries like Mali and Sudan of Russian and American troops on different sides or in different proxy wars with different jihadist groups trying to stop others like kind of sounds like some of the issues of Afghanistan all over again so it's it's a very complicated situation and I guess, it's, I guess the issue here is if, if you're like Russia or the United States or France, it's hard to have a tangible response to dealing with Islamic extremism in the area when these coups keep happening, and so the policies and the responses keep changing. And as this, it, it kind of creates a very vicious cycle. As, as the coups happen, the security crisis gets worse, and then you have more coups that actually make the security crisis worse. So it's really not a very effective situation at the time. Going further, though... There's another great article from the Foreign Policy Research Institute and the intern's name I wrote, I didn't write down, but it's a really good article from one of the research interns and he discusses how widespread basically these coups have become. And I kind of alluded to that earlier, but the article writes here in quotes, West Africa has recently been rocked by military uprisings. In the past three years, rogue soldiers have overthrown the presidents of Mali. Both, again, we have two coups, August 20th and then May 2021. Then you have Guinea, September 2021. Then you have Burkina Faso, January and September of 2022. And they don't even mention this here, but you have to almost think of like what happened in Chad where their longtime strongman died and his son took over to be kind of some sort of power vacuum that's being filled. That's also not a good situation. And anyways, like one of the key takeaways from this article, which is really well written, is that these security crises are just fertile grounds for coups. And these three countries have experienced, like I kind of mentioned earlier, serious security crises after the last several years or even close to a decade. And to go further into this, the article discusses how, in quotes here, terrorists are estimated to have gained control of up to 40% of Burkina Faso's territory, which is kind of insane if you think about it. And this is leading to 2,500 closed schools and over 1 million internally displaced persons. So that's, I mean, that's insane. And that's just in Burkina Faso alone. Then you have Mali's share of the conflict, which is less severe at the moment, but it's longer and apparently more complex. And it's actually dating back to like 2010, 2011, from what I'm seeing. And basically between Mali and Burkina Faso, the two countries are said to be the primary sources of violence. And because of this, they're locked into this self-perpetuating instability. And that's kind of what I talked about earlier, are you have these cycles. And basically, if you have societies that have histories of military uprisings, a security dilemma that creates a kind of prisoner's dilemma or a game of chicken, and then you also have growing fear, coups are likely to happen. And I won't get into all of it, but there's, there's a shit ton of studies out there that just state that coups are not usually successful. A lot of these studies show that the new regimes or military juntas or whatever you want to say are rarely more effective than the governments that they overthrow. These new governments usually have specific interests and very hyper-focused and narrow interests, and they seldom actually do things or act in the best interests of the state. And I think this is actually kind of why you see these coups occurring and then reoccurring and then reoccurring every year or so is because... These countries are stuck in very narrow-minded cycles that lead to vicious coups over and over again. And then this is just perpetuated when you also have rising extremism flourishing in the area. Now, I, I'm not even going to focus specifically on the weather crises and the food crises. I encourage people to go back to my episode in March where I dive into that because that episode has kind of stayed pretty evergreen. It's aged pretty well. And that's why I'm not going to go too deep into that today. But if you mix these prisoner dilemmas, security dilemmas, whatever you want to call them, along with food insecurity and rising temperatures and more extreme droughts and famines mixed with flooding, yeah, it's going to be a shit show. And the UN, part of their report talked about how they are sending, you know, liaisons and different groups there to try to help out as much as possible. But at the same time, there's only so much you can do. I mean... The UN is very well-intentioned, but there's just so only so much you can do. There really is only so much you can do. Now, I do encourage people to read literature on these coups. There's a lot. Read literature on what's happening in the Sahel, because I don't think U.S. Like, it's really interesting how difficult it is to find really good articles in a lot of like mainstream press. Like I'll I'll give it to the Washington Post. They had some good stuff on these coups. But usually I have to go to like Foreign Policy magazine or The Economist. Foreign Policy magazine, I've had to quit my subscription for because it's quite expensive when you mix it with The Economist and The Atlantic and all these other ones. But it's it's just fascinating that you really have to dig deep on the web to find good literature on these. And when I was writing with the Africa Center for Strategic Progress, I remember a lot of the research papers I was doing, it's quite difficult to really find good studies and sources without really digging. And now if it's an issue on like United States or Mexico or Canada or China, the world's your oyster. You know what I mean? The internet's your oyster, I guess. So anyways, I want to move on to Nigeria, which kind of ties into this. Nigeria is part of the Sahel. Nigeria is an interesting case in the region because its democratic institutions have fared much better. They've also been able to withstand Boko Haram, which is just an insane terrorist subset. I believe they're a subset of ISIS, but I could be wrong. And, you know, they're the ones that are always kidnapping schoolgirls and just really atrocious human beings that I hope rot in hell. Sorry if that's offensive, but I do hope that's the case. And these guys have been ramsacking Nigeria for a long time, and surprisingly... Democracy, or at least quasi-democracy, has done better there than in other places. Like, you don't hear about a bunch of military coups. So anyways, there is an election that's going to be taking place fairly soon. And the UN report I referenced earlier does discuss how they are going to be sending UN envoys there to help, like, maintain free and fair elections. What that means in Nigeria is kind of up for debate, to be honest. But The Economist has actually a really good article that came out, I guess it's today, Yeah, today's Thursday, so yeah. Uh, That came out today, and it's called After Eight Dismal Years, Nigeria Prepares to Replace President Buhari. And the article helps us understand that even though President Muhammadu Buhari did win huge landslides in both of his elections, he has struggled to bring prosperity to younger generations, mainly in Nigeria. And this is mainly seen through unemployment, which is rampant, and income is declining. And I do remember for the last like decade, I've been subscribed to The Economist and I've always read about how people thought that things were really going to turn a corner. There were always arguments about how Nigeria, which is true, is going to be one of the most populous countries in the world. Lagos is going to be a booming city and it could be a bastion for democracy in the region. And there's always arguments that Bukhari would be an agent for change. And he's done a couple good things, but unfortunately, (laughs) the majority have been failures. And The Economist provides some numbers that really do show how Buhari has failed in almost every way possible. There's a good article that writes here in quotes, between 2015 and 2020, the average income per person slid from $5,400 to $4,900 a year. And of course, this is adjusted for purchasing power, inflation, etc. And The article goes on to say the share of Nigerians living on less than $1.90 a day, which had fallen from 43% to 37% in the previous five years, increased back to about 40%. And that was before COVID hit. And actually, I don't even know if this article includes numbers over the last like two years, because that is difficult. Also, and this can't be neglected, is that violence there is quite extreme. Like the entire Sahel has had these issues. And Nigeria hasn't been spared. Jihadists and other rogue groups, for example, have attacked, and this is a crazy number, at least 550 of the country's 775 local government areas or counties. And apparently, just in the last year alone, over 3,000 people were kidnapped. I know in a country with tens of millions of people, that's not like the craziest number ever, but If you heard about 3,000 kidnappings in the US, well, maybe maybe there are, I won't even go down that, but it's not a good number. And apparently, that is almost a 30-fold increase since 2016, and there's just a feeling of uncertainty there, and if you've picked up anything from my rantings on the other area, is that when you have uncertainty, it can lead to a lot of issues in the region, which, you know, could lead to political instability, at least, or at the best, I guess, and from my understanding, Buhari is kind of an old military leader who, yes, he's a capitalist, and yes, he somewhat supports democracy, but he also does like to command the economy. He likes that command structure that doesn't usually work if you know anything about polit- I mean, political economy. And yes, he tries to command the economy even when the economy doesn't follow his orders, basically. And the one example that is huge is that Nigeria is a huge oil producer. And one of the reasons a lot of people think the cost of living and income and everything have plummeted, not, sorry, cost of living has gone up, income has plummeted. People think one of the main reasons for this is because oil oil prices have not been doing well over the last decade. And this has not helped the country. Basically, Buhari has tried failed interventions to try to fix this issue, and they've backfired. And yeah, yeah when you have a country that's very dependent on oil and you have kind of command style leadership that's misinformed, it's usually not a good recipe for success. And he also has stoked division, even though he claims to be a man for the people. And I think that's why a lot of Western outlets got him wrong, which we seem to do, unfortunately. Uh, Basically, well, there's questions here too, is like, he won like 94, 95% of the vote in the last election. I always question when you have any leader who wins with that percentage. But anyways, he did. And he did basically put out a statement that said something to the effect of the 5% of the people who did not vote for him would not receive the same treatment as him, and they were separatists. So clearly it's like, if you're not with me, you're going to be against me. So I think this comes from kind of his strongman roots being in the military. But this, this guy needs to go. I think that is very certain here. And the questions then come, like, is the election going to be good for the region? Is it going to be good for Nigeria? Because from my understanding, you have, like, France, right, helping fight against jihadism in the region. But you also need a country like Nigeria that is big and has a lot of resources to be able to fight and stop jihadism. Obviously, as we know, that can open up Pandora's box for a long time. And it could get ugly. But right now, I do think that Nigeria needs to kind of get its act together. And hopefully these elections will do it. Like I said, the UN is heavily involved in trying to make sure that freedom is happening. So anyways, the Sahel is interesting. I hope I could at least paint a little picture of what's happening there. Again, like I said, I ignored uh, or neglected to talk about. (laughs) We'll say it more diplomatically. I neglected to talk about the famine issues the climate issues and all of that but i think still the area is going to need international help but also these african countries are going to need to come together so anyways have a great thursday i'll be back adios